From FP Studios and the Climate Investment Funds, this is Heat of the Moment. I'm John Sutter. On today's program, our last episode, can you believe it? We're going to talk about technological saviors. There are plenty of people sitting around waiting for some magical or new or improved technology to come along and fix the mess that we've made for ourselves with the climate emergency. That's probably not going to happen. And anyway, we have the tools we need to ditch fossil fuels right now. A bit later on the program, we're going to talk with Mafalda Duarte, the director of the Climate Investment Funds, which is our partner and sponsor on this podcast. You may not know much about this organization, which partners with the World Bank and others, but they're making big bets all around the world, especially in the developing world, that aim to promote clean energy and slow deforestation, all that good stuff that we know would help with the climate crisis. Mafalda will explain how tricky this can be, but also how promising. Her group's goal is not only to give loans for solar farms, but really to help tip the scales in favor of a clean energy revolution. First, though, we're going to learn a little bit more about green technology today. Who's working on this and where is it headed? Reporter Molly Schwartz brings us three stories of how a greener future is closer than you might think. Our first stop is New York where we meet Marguerite Wells. She's a director of renewables at Invenergy, a clean energy company. Her career in renewable energy started 15 years ago, when she was working on her organic farm in upstate New York. Her neighbor proposed building a community-owned wind farm in their town. And I thought that sounded like a great idea. But there was a problem. Marguerite's neighbor wasn't very good with computers and he couldn't figure out how to open up the PDF documents for the permitting they'd need. So he recruited Marguerite's help. He said, can you open a PDF? And I said, yes. And he said, can you print one? And I said, yes. From printing that PDF, Marguerite found herself increasingly involved. She started going to meetings, filling out permits, building support for the project. And just like that, Marguerite became the Wind Farms project manager. She took it on, raised $3 million in community equity from local families, and got all the permits. But then, a wealthy new landowner moved into the neighborhood who opposed the wind farm. She created legal problems and convinced others to oppose it too. The wind farm never got built. But at that point, Marguerite had become a self-taught expert in navigating New York State's regulatory bureaucracy. So she decided to take her knowledge and make a career out of it. She got a job working at Invenergy, a company that builds green energy projects around the world. At Invenergy, Marguerite's leading a build on her fifth wind farm and third large solar farm. She's working on big wind projects that power tens of thousands of homes. But the fundamental technology has actually been around for hundreds of years. Originally they were mills, literally windmills milling grain and things. It was one of the first sources of power for electricity. Um, And the, the technology hasn't fundamentally changed, really. It's been improved upon, certainly. And the turbines that we see today, the modern generation of turbines, are really about 25 years old. So the innovation here is not the wind farms themselves, but that Marguerite has figured out how to get them built. She's become an expert in figuring out permitting, cutting through the red tape, and teaching others how to get wind farms in their own communities. I mean, here in New York, the challenge is is primarily the regulatory one. If you're developing wind projects in the Midwest, the permitting regime is easier and the wind is much better, but you don't have customers. 
And so there your challenge is how do you get the power out and to the customers? And so then you have to build transmission lines, and that's its own challenge. Since Marguerite joined Invenergy, she's noticed that convincing others to jump on board has in fact gotten easier. These days, there's more political will to build clean energy plants and tax breaks for people to build them. And once the financial equation changes, Marguerite says convincing others to join in has become a lot easier as well. She brings skeptical farmers around by showing them how having wind turbines on their property can be a worthwhile investment. In a place like New York State, the decision is almost a no-brainer. Residents receive tax incentives to build renewables, and in addition, companies like Invenergy further mitigate that risk by leasing land from farmers to build the wind turbines. But that doesn't mean that Marguerite is totally out of the business of myth-busting. One of the you know initial concerns people had had was, oh, the cows will be terrified or they won't give milk or something, and that's just fundamentally not true. It doesn't happen that way. Cows don't seem to care at all. For the most part, the farmers are happy to host the windmills. Farming is a tough business, and it ends up being a good deal. And this is a way to bring in money into people's pockets in a different way. And they've shown that farmers who have wind turbines on their land invest 50% more into their farms. And so that has secondary impacts on you know, the farm economy, on tractor sales and fertilizer inputs and things. Invenergy's teams have adopted the skills and methods that Marguerite honed in New York to build wind farms around the world, from Poland to Uruguay. Marguerite has shown that wind energy can be viable, even in places with tons of red tape to cut through. There's another environment that's ripe for reimagining, and that's our cities. To see where some of the most interesting experiments are happening in urban planning, we're turning now to Barcelona. There are 500 kilometers of municipal fiber optic internet cables that run through the city, which powers a host of energy-saving smart city features. They've implemented almost 20,000 smart meters that keep track of energy consumption. They have smart parking meters, which helps people locate open spots and cuts down on idling time. And their smart streetlights, which monitor air pollution, have also decreased energy expenditures by 30%. And now, the governing body of Barcelona's entire metropolitan area is working on a plan that will rethink the urban design of the entire region. So this is about 3.2 million people, 36 municipalities, and about 600 square kilometers. That's Javier Ortigosa. He works for the metropolitan area of Barcelona as an urban planner. He's part of a team that's working on an important project. So we are working in a team um, of architects, uh, engineers, environmental scientists, trying to develop a new urban plan for the whole metropolitan area. Instead of building cities to accommodate for new technologies, like cars, he wants the people who live in a city to decide what kind of city they want to live in. What we should be debating is how we want our cities to be. And then the technology should accommodate or should help us achieving these goals. Javier is a traffic specialist. He's trying to transform the way mobility works in the Barcelona metropolitan area. Right now, there's heavy traffic and suburbs are dominated by cars and highways, which is unpleasant for people and bad for the environment. Javier's goal is to make it possible for people to live their full lives with as little commuting as possible. 
A lot of the mobility that we have right now uh, is based on cars or trucks on combustion engines exhausting a lot of uh, fumes, right? At least here in Spain, about 40% of the energy consumption is uh, devoted to transportation. That's why Javier is focused on combating climate change by limiting the amount of time people spend driving, which will be a challenge because the urban population in Barcelona is growing. Traditionally, urban planning projects have met resistance in Barcelona when they've asked people to sacrifice too much. Business owners have complained that making changes to reduce cars will negatively impact their business. People living in the suburbs of Barcelona say that public transportation isn't good enough to restrict cars. That's why Javier is focused on improving the infrastructure for the people who will be the most affected, those in the suburbs. There, we can create areas with certain uh, density, with certain mixture, and They are close to public transport uh, lines and services. His plan is to rethink highways and instead build urban avenues with affordable housing, shops, offices, public transportation and foot traffic. These avenues would be the bones of this new or the future metropolitan area. And we would like also to put more density, to put more land use mix with public transport, with open spaces, offices, etc. Javier and his team are getting feedback from residents on what they'd like to see. They just launched a competition that'll take submissions for how people want to transform their 400 kilometers of segregated highways. And city planners are updating another green urban innovation, something called superblocks. They're essentially city blocks that have been closed off to cars, leaving the streets open for foot traffic and open-air activities. So the streets were friendlier, they have shared spaces, etc. So the idea is to recover some of the space for citizens. While the superblock concept has had some growing pains, other municipalities like Vitoria, a medium-sized city in the north of Spain, have implemented the design. The message that other cities are getting from Barcelona is, we don't have to wait for a new technology to save us. We need people to innovate with the technology we have. So far, we've looked at replacing fossil fuels, then reducing dependency on them. Now, we're talking about how to make them less harmful. 80% of the world's energy supply still comes from fossil fuel sources, like coal, natural gas, and oil. And while some environmentalists would like to get us to 100% renewable energy, others say a more realistic goal is to make the burning of fossil fuels less harmful. And that latter group includes John Gibbons. I'm a professor of carbon capture and storage at the University of Sheffield and director of the UK Carbon Capture and Storage Research Centre. He spent the past 18 years trying to develop a technology that actually captures and removes carbon from the environment. John had his light bulb moment back in 2002. I was at a carbon capture and storage conference in Kyoto and I was working on capturing CO2 effectively and worked out you could do it more cheaply and easily from conventional sources than people thought. To understand what John's talking about, you first have to understand what CCUS is. It stands for Carbon Capture, Utilization and Storage. And basically, CCUS is a range of technologies that are focused on removing carbon from the biosphere and storing it or using it for something else. It's a concept that's been around for nearly a century. The, the first capture technology was about 1930, actually. 
And that was for people who wanted CO2 to use for things, for chemical reactions, or, or quite a lot for fizzy drinks, actually. And it's, it's quite effective, uh, the method used. It's more or less the method we're using now, with, with very, very minor changes. But just because the technology is available doesn't mean the public is willing to invest in it. So in addition to being a scientist, John's also had to become a public advocate for CCUS. He's authored over 65 papers and 100 articles and reports on CCUS and related topics. Despite the technology's promise, getting people to consider CCUS has been an uphill battle. One of the challenges is converting people who are opposed to fossil fuels full stop. They want to move to a post-fossil economy, which is fine, but we probably don't want to bet the planet on doing it within 30 years. Oddly enough, another opposition group are other green energy initiatives. Since developing and deploying CCUS technologies really isn't viable without investments, which come in the form of subsidies, they're competing with other green tech for those subsidies. There's a lot of competition for subsidy. That's just, just life, what you expect. You know, you're talking about multi-billion dollar industries. Of course, they want to preserve their, their income stream. In the UK, where John lives, an independent group called the Committee on Climate Change put out a report in 2019 that includes a commitment to get to net zero emissions by the year 2050. And they've specifically listed CCUS as a necessary tool for getting there. John hopes that by committing to CCUS technologies, the UK will set a political example for the world to follow. The climate actually doesn't care how much energy humans have. The climate only cares about how much fossil carbon goes into the atmosphere. And carbon capture and storage is the only thing that addresses that really directly. It goes to the root of the problem and it breaks this million year habit of just dumping fossil carbon or any carbon dioxide into the atmosphere and letting nature sort it out. Whether it's wind energy, implementing smart growth for cities, or CCUS, a lot of the technology we need to make serious dents in our global CO2 emissions is already available today. One could argue that it's technology that got us into a climate mess in the first place. The machines we rely on to live our lives, to move around and farm our food and light our homes, it's all energy intensive. But this technology is created by people and used by people. In the end, it will be people who decide whether we use technology in a way that helps or hurts this planet we live on. I'm Molly Schwartz. It makes sense what Molly's saying here. There's no one piece of technology, no one silver bullet that's going to fix the climate crisis. More likely, it's going to be the work of all of us and our governments working together and reshaping the economy. If you've been listening to all 12 episodes of this series, you know that individual choices, what we eat and how we consume energy, all of that stuff, it really does matter. But fixing the climate crisis, getting to a carbon neutral economy, that requires the work of governments and big banks. They have to step in. They have to step up and they have to take responsibility for their massive role in shaping the global energy system. To date, they continue to subsidize and support fossil fuel projects. There's much to discuss in this area, but one promising development is the creation of the Climate Investment Funds in 2008. Since then, this group, which again is FP's partner on this show, has been making investments that aim to tilt the playing field 
in favor of clean energy. So we had the objective, uh, work with private sector entities, work with governments in developing countries and spearhead different policy and investment decisions. That's Mafalda Duarte. She's the director of the funds. I spoke with her this spring at the start of the COVID-19 lockdown. You'll probably hear some bird noises, other outdoor sounds during this interview. And that's only because Mafalda did this recording outside her home in Maryland with me on the phone from Salt Lake City. So Mafalda Duarte, welcome to Heat of the Moment. Thank you very much, John. It's a pleasure to be here. Mafalda, I want to start with, tell me and, and, and our listeners a little bit of background about the climate investment funds and, and how they came into existence. Sure, John. So uh, these funds, the climate investment funds, came into existence in 2008. As we will recall, that was a time of a deep uh, financial economic crisis. So we had both that mm-hmm. crisis and those uh, working in the field of climate change were also understanding that things were not moving uh, internationally as had been expected. And so G8 countries decided that they were going to show uh, leadership and uh, ask the World Bank and other regional development banks to get together, work together towards supporting developing countries, make different investment and policy decisions. And so they stood up these funds to spearhead in developing countries at a time when, you know, capital flows were flowing out of developing countries, where private sector was very wary of investing in developing countries in general, let alone, you know, in areas where there was little experience, where costs of uh, those investments were quite high. So that was the objective. Is it partly a recognition that the private sector on its own isn't moving fast enough to, you know, sort of switch away from the fossil fuel era into renewable energy sources. Tell me a little bit about the the need for this to exist in the world. Um, In the countries where we have invested, we have invested in first of its kind, wind projects, solar projects, geothermal projects. These projects had not happened in these countries as yet. Mm. You know, there wasn't such investments before. And you need to provide, you know, the private sector with the financial instruments that make them comfortable and with a cost of capital that make these projects bankable in those markets. Could you give me an example of one of these projects that really was a breakthrough? I mean, so in, in back in 2008 and nine in uh, Mexico, um, there were very few wind projects still, and they were basically public-led, utility-led. There was no mm-hmm. private sector investments in the wind market. Uh, we came in with our partners, a couple of multilateral development banks, and financed in the initial phase the first two private sector-led uh, wind power projects. That was for you know more than 300 megawatts of wind capacity, and it was around a billion dollars total investment. We put up uh, $45 million. And then in 2011, we came back in and provided another $70 million to a national bank uh, that would enable them themselves to finance uh, private sector projects, and they financed another five. Um, So in total, you know, we were there ourselves with slightly more than $110 million in the first one gigawatt of wind capacity, private sector-led. And after that, our type of concessional uh, money was no longer needed. So the market picked it up, local commercial banks picked it up, 
and it became a market in a few years of 5,000 megawatts and more than $12 billion invested. You know, in, in one of your recent reports, you, you list the you know largest concentrated solar plant in Morocco, the first fleet of hybrid city buses in South America, um, weather resilient roads in Mozambique, which has seen really extreme flooding in, in the last year, really. Um, but I, from my understanding, you, you actually lived in that country during another round of floods back in 2000. I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit about that experience in Mozambique and, and if that motivates your work. Yeah, it's actually very interesting because um, I, I went to, I moved to Mozambique in 2000. This was a year of massive floods uh, that made the headlines internationally as well. There was a, a lady that even gave birth to a, a little girl on a tree and that became quite well known internationally. And so I saw the level of devastation in the infrastructure was just incredible. And it let us realize that, you know, when we have roads that are destroyed and bridges that are destroyed, what happens is that you have a lot of uh, villages and communities that are now isolated. And in speaking to them, they very clearly state that they are isolated from many things, from being able to buy food, from being able to go to the doctor if they have, you know, a medical emergency. Of course, from preventing children to go to schools, which, you know, in particular, if we're not talking about primary schools, we're talking about secondary schools, are quite far from these villages. And so Mm. neither people can buy and access these really basic services and supplies neither the producers can deliver to the market. And then, you know, Mozambique is the third country in Africa, you know, more exposed to natural hazards. The third, it's a hotspot in Africa. And Mm -hmm. it oscillates, you know, between floods and then droughts and hurricanes. I I saw droughts and, and how people were struggling, in particular farmers. And a lot of this population, I mean, most of the jobs come from this sector, Um, So when they really face these natural disasters, it's a massive impact. And then you see coastal erosion in the country, and there's a lot of infrastructure in coastal lines. Uh, This is what people have to realize. You know, right now we have 680 million people globally living in these areas, coastal zones within 100 kilometers of the sea. And, you know, these investments are highly vulnerable and susceptible. You know, the sea is moving inwards. Um, So this is not theoretical. This is happening in people's lives uh, all over the developing world. You mentioned, like, policies that um, uh, the governments can put in place. I mean, there are still many, many countries all around the world that subsidize, you know, the fossil fuel industry, haven't put a price on carbon, you know, I'm wondering what you think some of the policy pressure points are. Like, what should countries be doing in order to to push things toward clean energy faster? Yeah, I mean, there has to be a look at all of these uh, distortive uh, subsidies. You know, these are very powerful tools, and ministers of finance understand this very well. And I think there's a responsibility of us all, you know, including the media, to cover these topics as they need to be covered because we have a number of distortive subsidies in place, you know, fossil fuel subsidies, we have water subsidies, we have other subsidies in place um, that are driving certain behaviors and certain investment choices 
which are not really putting us in the sustainable path that you know we need to be in and of course yes if we remove these subsidies there are groups that will be impacted and vulnerable groups therefore the need for combined policy packages uh, while we remove you know fossil fuel subsidies or put a price on carbon we have to look at okay what are the groups that tend to be quite affected amongst the vulnerable and the poor and what do we need to do and put in place to basically make sure that they don't suffer from this impact and some countries you know they are doing this so it can be looked purely from a fiscal point of view it, it needs to be looked f- from you know the social point of view and and what is it that we need in tandem yeah i mean it's a tricky conversation in some ways right because many thousands of people have died are are dying in the in the covid-19 pandemic and i've seen a lot made of the fact that you because economies have been shut down because people are working from home you know there've been certain reductions in air pollution and and um to some degree um emissions i mean from my perspective i think it's like it's important to realize the reason that that's coming about is not um because of concern about air pollution or or, or the climate crisis but what uh, your point is a really good one i think which is that we as people are pretty bad at like seeing problems on the horizon no matter how much evidence we have of their severity and costliness and deadliness and all those sorts of things. Yeah, I mean, this should be as you said in my view a waking up call. Right now, we have to make sure this is what is happening. We have to make sure that we do our utmost best to save as many lives as we can and to equip the health system with as many resources as we can where they are needed. I mean I I feel very strongly I mean I see the news and and stories of people and including you know uh, relatives of people that uh, I know that have lost their jobs because somebody told them you know that the governments have to tell them you you have to stop you have to be at home and you, you you know you can't go out and work so for the greater benefit of everybody people are suffering individually and in their families so we seriously need to make sure that all of these people suffering are protected and supported. We have to act on the moment, but we have to think about what we should be doing next because governments are right now putting in place big fiscal stimulus packages in these economies. Mm-hmm. And if these investments, in particular when it comes to infrastructure, if we lock in these investments that are not going to put us in the path that we need to be we It's are sort of lock in fossil you fuels you are locking yeah, yeah. in 50 years worth of investments and so while we are responding to the immediate needs we need to be talking and discussing with the decision makers about how these resources should be invested i think that's one concern the, another thing that i've sort of realized i think a lot of people in climate activism have seen is oh okay when something truly disastrous is happening the world can decide to boldly act together and can spend a lot of money and make a lot of personal sacrifice in order to save lives in this case and i think one open question right now is like how how do you get people to wake up to the climate crisis in that same way i don't know what else has to happen in order for that wake up to really come to be in terms of climate 
I, I like to be an optimist <laughs> and I, I am an optimist. Um, and so, you know, my key message to everybody is there's no such thing as this doesn't concern me. I mean, maybe a lot of people are thinking this doesn't concern me. You know, this is something that governments or private sector um, need to be thinking about. There isn't such a thing, you know. We are all agents of change because, you know, we are consumers, we are investors, because we elect, you know, officials. And we are in a world where there's vast opportunities. Technology is enabling us to do things that weren't imaginable just a few years ago. So if there's another lesson from this crisis right now is that we can act so decisively and with a sense of urgency like we have not seen before. So I think from now onwards, it's going to be very difficult to explain to a lot of people that, no, we cannot make certain decisions. I mean, because now we are witnessing there can be quite strong, bold decisions being made. And that's what's going to be asked for in the future to enable us to prevent, you know, or being this exposed to this level of risk. You know, we, we have uh, natural disasters. One needs to stop and think, how can these economies and these societies cope or regions cope with higher intensity and frequency of such shocks. We can't. And so therefore, the only real uh, reasonable strategy is prevention and preparing ourselves and risk management and, and making ourselves resilient. Um, so I think we will hopefully be learning a lot and coming out of this crisis with a different way of thinking and approaching very obvious, but still neglected risks. Um, how do you stay optimistic about, about these big challenges that we have in front of us? I mean, I, I stay optimistic because we, are, we have never been as well equipped as we are right now in terms of knowledge, the science, the financial uh, resources. Uh, we are seeing movement as well on the political front. But I also realize that this is not enough. So we need to start thinking about these other things that maybe we tend to think less of, which is we have the youth mobilized and they can be a big agent of change. We have the technology that we didn't have before, which are actually empowering a lot more decentralized action. We have transparency, we have access to information that didn't exist before. So we can organize ourselves in different ways without having to rely on others uh, to take action. And we can certainly mobilize ourselves to demand action from those others that also need to act. You know, we are in a different world and we have the financial, we have the technological, we have the scientific means to mobilize actions in different ways and forms. I mean, it's, it's, I think it's incredibly um, helpful to hear that we have the tools to beat the climate crisis. It really is just about a, a, a change in attitude. Um, a change in so consciousness. Duarte, um, it's, a, it's a waking up, I think. Yes. Yeah. Well, Mafalda Duarte, thank you so much for, for joining us. This has been a, a real pleasure. Real pleasure, John. Thank you so much. That's Mafalda Duarte, the director of the Climate Investment Funds.
So like I mentioned, this is the final episode of Heat of the Moment. FP Studios and I would like to thank you for listening, and more importantly, really, for taking the climate crisis seriously. We know there's a lot else going on in the world right now, but we believe strongly that this is the most pressing issue of the century. And we have to start talking about solutions to the climate crisis as well as the problems. We hope this is just the beginning of many more conversations, and we hope you feel inspired by these stories of climate action that's happening right now. If you haven't already, please check out the other episodes of Heat of the Moment. And for the latest on climate change, be sure to check out foreignpolicy.com as well as climateinvestmentfunds.org. Finally, if you'd like to keep up with my work, consider following me on Instagram or Twitter. I'm JD Sutter. And if you go to baselinefilm.com, you can learn about a documentary that I'm working on now. It's called Baseline, and it aims to tell the story of the climate crisis beyond a human generation, between now and the year 2050. The opinions expressed in this series do not necessarily represent the stance of foreign policy, the climate investment funds, or their partners. Our podcast is produced by myself and Emily Johnson, with help from Scott Andrews and Dan Haverty. Special thanks to KUER and KCPW in Salt Lake City and WABE in Atlanta for their assistance. The director of FP Studios is Rob Sachs. I'm John Sutter. Thank you for listening.